Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. This is going to be a fun day. Yeah, man, this dude has uh, quite the fucking pedigree. I, I think we spent, what was it, 15 minutes listening to everything that he's doing right now for... Uh, I'm telling you, how does this guy have any spare time whatsoever? I don't know, man. I don't know. But it's it's fucking awesome to see, you know, people like him involved in so many different organizations and, and helping people out. That's that's what the goal of it is, man. That's life, right? Listen, let me just let me just run down the list here. He's a current uh active detective uh in New Jersey. Uh he's a master trainer uh for resilient minds, uh resiliency training. Team lead for the Wounded Blue. He's involved in res- uh, nonprofit responders for reps for responders. Uh, he is a West Point grad, fisherman by hobby, and I'm not talking just like little mess around going to the pond fishing. This dude is a crazy good fisherman, uh, and he's also apparently building a new nonprofit again. Welcome to the podcast, Brad Wadby. Thanks, man, for coming on. Hey, what's what's going on? What's going on, guys? How are you? Good, good. So glad to uh, so glad to have you on here, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm grateful for you guys for uh, giving me this opportunity to come on board and uh, and talk to you guys. Really appreciate it. Did I get that bio correct? I mean, that's a long like. That's that's not even yeah. all of it. <laughs> no, it's not. It's you know, it's a Reader's Digest version. That's awesome, man. Well, hey, let's let's dive into this a little bit, uh, man. You you got a lot of stuff going on. You clearly have a passion for the law enforcement and veteran community. Tell us a little bit about Young Brad. How you ended up in uh, your um, your passion for these uh, for these two areas? All right. So um, you know, born and raised here in northern New Jersey, about uh, thirty minutes outside of. Uh, Manhattan. I, I lived a pretty normal life. You know, I'm a, I'm a son of a funeral director, so I lived above a funeral home for the first 10 years of my life. So I was exposed to to trauma and death at a very young age. Um, so really, you know, that helped me out later on in my in my life with my career in law enforcement that, you know, dead bodies did not bother me because, you know, I was exposed to it at a young age. Um, was very involved in sports growing up. Um, and eventually that helped me get a, uh, you know, get recruited by many uh, top schools around the country and ended up uh, selecting um, and choosing my appointment to West Point to uh, go go on there and play football. I had to go to a prep school for a year. I had to go to West Point Prep down in uh, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, so it wasn't that far away. And then uh, went up to uh, West Point for four years, actually four and a half. Um, and it's funny how this all happened. I actually, I actually was dismissed from the academy the day before my graduation. All right, um, because what happened was I ended up because while I was playing football there, you're on what's called the selected athlete program, and you can be as big as you want it to be, as they needed you to be to play line. Because you know we have to still conform to Army height weight standards while you're at West Point and pass a PT test, but they they give us like a waiver for like the linemen and, and you know the bigger guys because we they want us to compete. So while I was playing ball up there, you know, I did not have to conform to Army height weight standards, and I did not have to take a regular PT test. I took a modified one. And uh, instead of a two-mile run, we did a 12-minute bike test. And once I was done playing football, they took that away, you know, and I had to go uh, pass a normal APFT, uh, the two-mile run, in order to graduate. So uh, I ended up 
Um, you know, I did, the furthest I ran while I was up there was 100 yards because that's the length of a football field. And that's all I did for my four years, you know. And when it came time to take the PT test, I missed it by 51 seconds. And I got dismissed from the academy. And I was also handed a bill for $190,000 to recoup the cost of my education. So, you know, at 22 years old, you know, I don't know any too many 22-year-olds that have $190,000 sitting around liquid in their bank account. So I didn't, you know, I didn't have that, you know, and um, that was actually the first time that I actually um, contemplated taking my life was after that event uh, because I felt like a failure. I felt, I, I felt like I disappointed my family. I let them down. I didn't want to go home and, and face my family, my friends, my community because I viewed myself as being a failure. And that has been a belief that I've had ever since the day I was born. I've always felt like um, I was a piece of shit, felt like I was a failure, felt like I've been a burden on everyone that I've come in contact with. Um, you know, that was just something that was, you know, that formed through my, uh, through my formative years, you know, and uh, this was actually the first time that everything that those, those feelings that I had, you know, in my head, they started coming to fruition, you know, and I really believed it. And that's the first time that I actually contemplated committing suicide. You know, I was going to walk out the gate of West Point and walk down to the Bear Mountain Bridge and jump off, you know, and uh, thankfully I didn't. All right. So uh, I came home after that and uh, I fell into a deep, deep, deep depression, you know, um, drinking nonstop. Um, the only jobs I could hold were, you know, I, I was a salesman. I was a mortgage broker for a little bit and doing that stuff. You're, you, you know, you're, you, as a broker, you know, I, I'm, I'm not good at lying to people. I, I like to be honest, you know, and trying to, you know, bait and switch these people who are looking for a mortgage to lower their, you know, to lower, their, you know, rates and stuff like that. It, it just didn't sit right with me. So that's when I decided, I said, you know what, if I can't go overseas and fight for this great country that I love so much, um, I, let me do it here stateside. So that's when I decided to um, get into law enforcement. And um, it was August 27th of 2007 that I entered the 109th class of the Port Authority Police Academy. And I ended up working for a, um, a bi-state agency similar to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. But our main, our main goal was to uh, police the ports and try to keep organized crime out of the ports of New York and New Jersey, which is damn near impossible. Okay, um, so if you guys ever seen the movie On the Waterfront, that's basically what our job was, was to police organized crime and, you know, try to uh, get it out of, uh, of the ports of New York and New Jersey. And I did that for about four and a half years. And during that time, you know, I became friends with a lot of state troopers, you know, and um, started hanging out with them all the time. And um, I thought my drinking was normal. Because I was hanging out with all these guys and we were, you know, we were all drinking like like one like each other, you know, and I didn't think anything was wrong. Um, but looking back on it, you know, definitely something was wrong, right? Because my drinking was definitely out of control. And, um, you know, I ended up um, finally, you know, applying for the position I'm at now, um, having my first interview back in, uh, back in July, I believe, of 2011. And I remember the interview that I had, it was with two captains. And uh, the first question they asked me, they said, uh, if you were to get hired here, where would you want to go work? I said, that's, that's, that's easy. You know, put me in organized crime, put me in narcotics. That's what I do. You know, I'm a big dude. So, 
you will not have a problem getting through any door in our county. Um, I, um, so I was really passionate about it, you know, and uh, then they asked me, where don't you want to go? And I said, well, I don't want to go to sex crimes or special victims. And they're like, well, why is that? I said, because I don't know how I'm going to react to dealing with the suspects in an interview room. All right. Um, and that was, that was partially the truth, you know, but uh, the real reason behind it, why I didn't want to go there was because I was a victim myself back when I was younger. And uh, that was my, one of my deepest, darkest secrets. And I never told a single soul about it. Um, and um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not about to, you know, the first people I'm, not, I'm about to tell, it's not going to be these two captains for my dream job, you know? So I kept it, kept it locked up. I just kept on pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. And uh, I ended up getting hired. And where do you think they put me? Put me into special victims. And for almost four years, I was, I was in special victims. And every single time I had to do, you know, I'm 6'5", 300 pounds. And they had me interviewing these little kids. And every time these, these parents would bring their kids to our, uh, to our office to interview them, they would look at me and be like, do you have any other, uh, any other detectives that can interview this person? You might scare my child. I'm like, don't worry about it. I got it. We're good. And uh, I would sit on the floor with these kids and talk to them, you know. And, uh, but every single time I did a forensic interview with them, it triggered me. And it brought me back to that time and place where I where I was a victim. Now, for context here, Brad, have you told anybody? Or is this your secret? At this point, I haven't told a single soul, right? So I kept it I kept it hush-hush, right? And the only way that I knew how to deal with, with stress in my life up to this point was to drink. And I became best friends with a guy named Tito. And him and I hung out a lot. And, uh, you know, it, it first started out with being the um, – being the weekend warrior, you know, start at five o'clock on a Tuesday, on a Friday rather, and go till Sunday, you know, then eventually it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then Wednesday, you know, then it, then it eventually becoming every day of the week, you know, and uh, I did that for about three and a half, four years. And in uh, 2016, I got a, a transfer to, uh, to narcotics and uh, which was great for me. I loved it because I was going to be in a, a proactive unit. Uh, rather than a reactive unit and, uh, you know, it'd be running and gunning something that I wanted to do. I'd get my adrenaline fix, right? Because, you know, as an addict, I'm an adrenaline junkie, you know? And, um, so I did that, uh, for about two years. And during the same time I, uh, tried out and made our county's regional SWAT team. And so I was on the team as a breacher. And I mean, at this point in time in my career, all I wanted to do was break things and hurt people. You know, I wanted to let my aggression out. And, uh, and I was good at it. You know, they gave, you know, give me a Ram and they go, all right, Mongo, go break down that door. Okay. Easy. Right. And I, you know, I had fun doing it. I loved it. Right. But, uh, on the outside, I looked like I loved it. Right. But on the inside, I was still, I was fighting that battle. You know, every single day I was not happy with myself. I hated myself, did not love myself whatsoever. My negative, I had such a negative self image of myself, right. Where I started to believe everyone around me had the same view that I had of myself. And I started to become paranoid and I started to, uh, you know, isolate myself and started to drink more and more, you know? Um, also during this time, you know, back in, uh, 2014, I ended up getting married. Um, you know, and when I got married, I get, you know, I got into a fight at my wedding. You know, with one of my uh, with one of my close friends, who's also a cop, 
Um, and we've now become, we, we now rekindled our friendship, right? And to now we're, we're both doing the same thing for our organizations. You know, he's a state trooper and uh, he's in charge of their employee assistance unit, right? And I'm in charge of our county's resiliency program, right? So we're kind of doing the same thing. And, th and that's how we actually got reconnected was I, brought, I had brought a, uh, an officer to the hospital, right, to get checked out. And uh, he was actually a responding trooper that came. And that, and that was the first time we had seen each other in seven years. And it was like we didn't miss a beat, you know. And uh, we kicked it right back off again. And, you know, we were, we were great friends, you know. Uh, he's actually coming on board to be a member of the board for the uh, for Beyond the Badge, New Jersey. You know, so um, yeah, that's what recovery is all about: is you know um, making those amends and um, and putting that past life behind us. You know, and trying to do the next right thing and pay it forward to those individuals now who are sick and suffering. Um, so I did that, um, and then you know in December of 2014, excuse me, 2018, I just hit a breaking point. You know, um, I had, you know, at this point I had two kids, you know, who, uh, for lack of a better term, I neglected in their younger years. You know, I, I, I was physically present, but mentally I was checked out. And every single time I was around them, I would, I, I'd be drinking, you know, and uh, my ex-wife uh, likes to send me pictures as a reminder, every so often, uh, she'll send me pictures of me passed out on the couch with a 30-ounce Yeti tumbler next to me filled with vodka, you know, and my kids climbing all over me trying to get my attention, you know, and uh, would send me pictures. You know, my, my, kid, my, my oldest son's first Christmas, I don't remember because I was so drunk, you know, and um, coincidentally, Christmas Day is my sobriety date. You know, so now I get to every year, um, I get the best president of all, and that's a gift of sobriety. You know, so um, I ended up, you know, on um, shortly after Christmas in 2018, December 27th, um, I had a suicide attempt. I was sitting in my truck um, after my wife and I had had a in-depth conversation, um, and she told me that she wanted to get a divorce. You know, so what goes through my mind when someone, when my wife tells me that she wants to get a divorce? First things I think about, she's going to take my kids. She's going to take all my money. She's going to take my pension. She's going to take the house. She's going to take everything. I'm going to have nothing and I'll be living in a van down by the river, right? So what the fuck's the point of living, right? And I just had one of those fucking moments and I hopped in my car, emotional, crying, and um, I drove to my hometown. And uh, when I, on my route, on my ride there, I took out my cell phone and I wrote a text message to my wife, which was going to be the last message I ever wrote to her. I said, I'm sorry. I love you. You're not going to have to deal with me anymore. And I shut my phones off and I drove to the top of this mountain in my hometown, which had a beautiful scenic view of New York City. And I pulled into the parking lot there um, and um, just sat there. And um, trying to think of any reason not to take my life. And uh, I couldn't think of one. I was thinking about my kids, thinking about, you know, I need to be there for them, you know, and all this other stuff. And I, the way I rationalized in my head, I said, my kids don't need me. I'm a piece of shit father. 
Um, I'll be gone. My uh, my wife will find someone new who will better who will be better equipped and better able to deal with my kids and raise them the way they need to be raised. And um, I went to my uh, went to the center console in my truck, took out my duty weapon, and um, first put it on my lap, and then I, you know, picked it up and put it in my mouth. And um, I'm sitting there, I'm picking up slack on the trigger, and I'm like again trying to think of anything, and I couldn't think of a single goddamn thing. And um, for what reason, I don't know, but the voice of my best friend who got killed in Afghanistan in 2013 popped into my head and said, put the gun down, pick up the phone. And literally like that, I was like this, I dropped it. And I went, got my cell phone, turned it on, and my phone blew up. And uh, it was all mixed, missed uh, text messages and phone calls from my wife. Pick up the phone, I call her, and she's hysterically crying on the phone. And she's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm safe. And she's, uh, she's like, the cops are here. I called the cops. And I immediately exploded on her. I said, you just ruined my fucking career. Thank you very much. Okay. See, because at that point in my life, that's all I gave a shit about was work. My identity had become Brad the SWAT operator, Brad the narcotics detective, right? When it should have been Brad the father, Brad the husband, right? And then Brad the detective, okay? My priorities were fucked up. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for her making that phone call, I can guarantee you I would not be here today talking to you guys on the phone. At first, I was mad at her, obviously, but now I told her, you know, and I give her credit where credit is due, man. She saved my life, you know, and uh, I was told to go. They put She put me on the phone with the cops. I was told to go to the local PD to uh, to go turn myself in pretty much because you're like, Brad, don't make us come find you. All right, because it's going to end bad. And uh, I was like, no, I need help. So I went and turned myself into my to my hometown PD. And what a embarrassing thing that I had to do because I went to high school with half of the guys in the department. They all knew me, you know, my father having a business in town and, you know, being a funeral director in town at some point or another, these guys all work for my dad because all the pallbearers that my father uses are either firemen or cops, you know? And, um, I was sitting there and thank, thank God this one detective that I had a very good relationship with and he had a very good relationship. My father was, was working and we sat down and, and we talked and, uh, he called my, my union delegate. He showed on up, my dad showed on up and they ended up taking me down to, uh, the County psych hospital. And I spent four days there for the worst fucking days of my life. And, um, but what was awesome is when I got there, um, there were three people waiting for me. You know, my my state delegate from my union had took the ride down with me. He had met me at the PD and, and drove down with me. My best friend, who was our union president at the time, met me at the hospital. The another close friend of mine, who was the vice president, met me at the hospital. And then um, another close friend of mine, who was my SWAT commander, met me at the hospital. And those four guys stayed with me in the hospital until I got moved up to the unit. And they did, they did everything they could to try to make me feel comfortable, you know, and, which is kind of hard in a situation like that, you know. And eventually when I got moved up to the, to the unit, 
you know, I'm trying to keep my, my identity anonymous because I don't know who I'm in there with, you know, I don't know who likes or dislikes cops. So, you know, I told him, said, please don't mention to anyone that I'm, I'm in law enforcement. So what does the doctor do the first time she meets me? Right. I'm at the nurse's station. He calls on, she calls me on over. She's like, Hey detective, how you doing? I'm like, would you shut your goddamn mouth, please? You know? Um, and she goes, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, uh, I understand what you're going through. I'm like, Oh, you do? Please enlighten me. Tell me how, tell me how I'm feeling. She's like, I know how you're feeling. You know, my, my daughter dates a cop. So I know. And I'm like, listen, just because your, your, your daughter's getting banged out by some cop does not mean, you know what I'm going through, you know? Um, then it was another incident where they had, um, my guys, my buddies had brought me to contract for me to go to the rehab facility and, uh, I'm sitting there and I have a regular pen, right? A regular big pen. And this nurse comes on over and starts screaming at me. You can't have a pen. You could hurt someone. I was saying to myself, like, if I need this pen, if you think that I need this pen to hurt someone, I'm not the one who's crazy. It's you. Cause I will take everyone in this unit and everyone in this hospital right now, you know? And I was just so angry, right? Being in there and eventually um, they were gonna send me down to Florida to, you know, down there and uh, my, cause that's, that's basically what, what the way it was done up to this point, you know, everyone goes to Florida. You got a problem, go, go to Florida, go get treatment, right? Come back in 30 days. My chief stopped and said, we need to send Brad to someplace different. We need to send Brad to a place where he's going to be with people that are cut from the same cloth he is, right? And he put a phone call out to uh, the guys from Tomahawk Strategic Solutions, which is a company that trains us on, on the SWAT team, okay? And they're a bunch of uh, guys from Tier 1 operators, retired and active from uh, Naval Special Warfare and from um, the Army Special Mission Unit Delta, right? And... Um, we get in phone call with get in, get in touch with their with the CEO and president of the company, uh, this guy Wally, right? And uh, him and I have uh, we're very good friends and still are to this day. And uh, he put a phone call into Tom Spooner, who uh, founded uh, Warrior's Heart down in Bandera, Texas, and that's where I, that's where I ended up going to rehab. Um, I left on January first of twenty nineteen and got there and spent forty two days there. Got sober there, you know, uh, loved it. Right. But, um, I had a couple, um, if I can go back, you know, and do it again, um, I would have stayed, um, I would have gone to an IOP when, when I got out. See, when I got out, I didn't go, I didn't know anything. And the fact of the matter is no one in my department did, right. No one was educated on this stuff, right. To no fault of their own, right. They, they didn't, they didn't know, right. They didn't know all the resources that were out there. So when I got out, um, of there, you know, I got, to, got heavily involved in AA, got the sponsor, did everything I was supposed to do. They told me how to do 90 meetings in 90 days. I ended up doing like 120 meetings in 90 days. Right. Um, but the biggest thing was I had the biggest problem with the third step, right. Which was, uh, giving my will and thinking up to the care of God. Right. But what I did was I gave my drinking up to the care of God. I did not give my, my will and my thinking up. Right. I still was the director of my own movie. Right. And uh, I needed to understand that uh, I didn't learn that I just needed to give it on up to him because where did my drink, where did my thinking get me, right? It got me to a all expense paid vacation for 42 days to a facility, right? Um, so I, for the first year in my recovery journey, I was a dry drunk, you know, 
And during this time, I basically, you know, when I got back from rehab a week later, um, excuse me, a month later, I had to go get surgery on my knee because I had gotten run over by a car uh, in November of 2018. We were doing a job down in Camden and the guy didn't want to go to jail that day and he decided to run me over instead. So I ended up getting catapulted onto the hood of the car and, um, you know, fucking my knee up pretty good. And uh, so I had to go in for surgery. And that was on March 11th of 2019. And when my dad picked me up from my house to go to, uh, to go to the hospital, my wife told me, she's like, don't bother coming home. I don't want you here. Right. Um, and that was the last time I lived with my kids. And uh, a week later after that, uh, my wife, wanted, my wife put the house on the market, right? In July of that year, our house was sold and she ended up moving down by her parents, um, which is in like central Jersey, about, about 45 minutes away from where I live currently. And um, she, and I was basically left to have two decisions, either I go home or I try to find an apartment, right? And ended up finding an apartment, um, in the same county where I was living and it was a one bedroom apartment above a hoarder's house and, uh, who was also an alcoholic. And, um, I called it my depression dungeon because never once did I turn on the lights. Never once did I open up the windows. Never once did I never cleaned, right? My, I mean, my, my, uh, refrigerator, there was nothing in there. You know, um, I was just, you know, putting a bandaid on a sucking chest wound. That's what I was doing, you know, and it was, uh, I was just suffered every single minute of my day. And, um, I ended up, um, replacing one vice with another, you know, I, I ended up replacing the booze in my life with women, you know, my front door be to my apartment became a revolving door woman. And I thought that that would make me feel better, but you know what? It just made me feel worse. And, um, Eventually, in um, in December of 2019, um, I was having a relationship with this other girl. While at the same time, I was trying to fix things with my with my wife, right? And um, the, the either either party did not know about each other. And finally, this, this girl I was talking to called me out on it, and uh, I fessed up to it. And uh, I went and I and I went and I called up my wife and I told her, you know, and. Um, Obviously, I did not go over well, and that was on a Friday that I told her that following Monday, which was December 9th, I um, went to an AA meeting, and I remember getting on up and saying, I don't want to live this life anymore. I want to live a life of honesty, and I want to live a life of um, happiness, right? And I know that I can't do that if I'm still running my life, right? And uh, this gentleman who I had never seen in my life stopped me in the meeting as I was walking out. And he says, you know about prisoners, right? You deal with them on a daily basis. You know, you tell them when to eat, when to sleep, when to go to the bathroom, when to exercise, when to do everything in their day, right? You need to become a prisoner to God. God needs to tell you when to do everything. And it clicked with me. And I was like, wow, that makes sense, you know? And uh, he goes, you need to stop when you get out of here and you need to call Tyler up. I'm like, dude, how the hell are you? Like, I've never met you before. How do you know I know someone named Tyler, which I do. It's a kid I work with, you know? 
because Tyler's very, and the kid is, he's very religious, very spiritual. He says, reach out to him. Okay. So I was like, all right. So I, um, I left, I called my buddy up and I could hear the excitement in his voice. And he's like, Brad, I've been meaning to call you. You know, this past weekend when I was at church, I started praying for you and God came, God spoke to me and said that if I, if I were to give my, my, uh, my life up to, up to God, right. That, uh, he would give me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I'd be doing something, helping out cops and veterans. And I told him, I said, all right, brother, keep drinking the Kool-Aid. All right. I don't believe it for one bit. All right. And then about 30 minutes later, I get a phone call from my chief and my chief tells me I need to, I need to see you in my office. All right. So I was like, shit, that's never good. Right. So I went down and uh, I went to my chief's office. And uh, when I went to his office, there's my chief, my deputy chief, my SWAT commander. And I look into the corner and I see the sergeant from internal affairs sitting there. And when I saw my sergeant from internal affairs sitting there, I said, fuck my life. I'm done. Right now. I've already got my gun and badge taken for me twice. I had another incident a year prior to my suicide attempt where, um, I had run into a guy in a bar, a guy that I had arrested and, uh, I was drunk and this guy approached me and, uh, really don't have any recollection of what I said. But, uh, about a week later, he called on up to my internal affairs and filed a complaint against me. Right. And, uh, I got my ass ripped for that. And he, um, and I went and told my sergeant, I said, I think this is a sign I need to stop drinking. And she went and went and told my chain of command. And they, that's when they brought me on in. And that's when I got my gun and badge taken for me for the first time, you know? So this time I thought I was done. I thought they're giving me no more chances. I am absolutely finished. Right. So they come take my gun and badge and I, uh, had to go see the, the, the department psych again. And uh, he recommends that I go to this place called Sierra Tucson out in Arizona. And he puts me in touch with this guy, Bill Mazer, and uh, call him up. And um, on Saturday of that week, I ended up hopping a flight out to Tucson and uh, went out there for 30 days to work on my to work on my head. And while I was out there, I, I actually started doing EMDR therapy, right? I did uh, TMS therapy. Right, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, right? And that was an absolute game changer for me. When I started doing that, and now I do it once a year, because that's what my insurance allows. They allow up to, you know, one treatment for uh, every year. When treatment is 36 sessions. And um, that's where I started doing that. And I became, I, I, I started diving in to the scripture and reading the Bible while I was out there. And I started reading a lot of, a lot of, um, versus on resiliency and bouncing back and stuff like that, you know? And, um, when I got back, you know, and also while I was out there, I said to myself, you know, I need to find a hobby. I need to find something that makes me happy. And I'm sitting out there and I'm listening to, um, I'm sitting in my therapist's office and I hear this trickling waterfall and it's one of those, you know, uh, desktop waterfalls that probably every therapist has, you know, in their office. And it's, it's like a trickling waterfall. And it reminded me of the stream that I used to fish as a kid, which I used to, you know, it's not too close, not too far from me rather. And, um, fishing for little native brook trout. They're literally probably about this big, you know, and, um, catching them on a fly rod. And, uh, I said, I need to get back into fly fishing. And so when I got back, one of the first things that I did was I went to the local fly shop 
and I bought my, my, uh, my first fly rod. Okay. And, um, so I get back and, uh, go, you know, go, go get checked out by the doc again. Tells me you, you got to sit out for another 90 days. You got to go to an IOP. It's like, fine. I want to go. Right. So I ended up going to an IOP, which is about an hour and a half from where I live. And, um, you know, during this time I'm out of work. So all I'm doing really is working out, going to AA meetings and going to IOP. Right. So I was really focusing on myself and, um, Eventually, I get called into my chief's office, and this is probably around, like, I want to say maybe like May, uh, March 1st of, of 2020. I get called into my chief's office, and uh, before this, before walking into his office, I had actually gone into my uh, wallet, and I had taken out my, um, my badge and my ID and put it in my front pocket because I honestly thought that he was going to be asking for it because they were going to be terminating me. And the first words that my chief said to me when I walked in was, all right, Brad, here's the deal. Tomorrow morning, you're going to go see the sergeant, you know, the, the firearm sergeant, uh, draw your weapon from the armory. You're going to go to the range and you're qualified and you're back to full duty. And I was like, I was shocked. Right. And uh, he says, oh, and by the way, uh, next Monday, you're report down to uh, Mount Holly, which is down in Burlington County outside of Philadelphia. It's about two hours away. And he says, uh, you're going to go to this master resiliency training, right? And uh, he's like, I want you to take your life experience that you have just gone through. And I want you to help other officers who are going through the same shit. And I said, easy day, sir. Not a problem. And that's what I did. And uh, went down there on, uh, on that Monday, went to this two-day training. And I uh, got certified as a uh, master resiliency trainer for the state of New Jersey. And that's when my, my mission began, you know, and shortly there, you know, that was on, you know, finished on a Tuesday. That Friday is when the world shut down when COVID hit, you know, and we were right here in the epicenter of this whole thing. And uh, when that happened, our office shut down, you know, and we went from working, you know, every single day to now working your one week on and two weeks off, right? Because they didn't want everyone working together and contaminating each other. So I had two options during that time because all the gyms were closed. All the AA meetings were now went to virtual, okay? And um, the only thing that was open because it was deemed a necessity were liquor stores, right? So I had the choice of either going to a liquor store every day or I can go fishing every day. And during COVID, I went fishing every single damn day. And I would wake up in the morning early and I'd drive about an hour and a half up to uh, the, the wilderness part of New Jersey. You know, not everything's all, you know, highways and, you know, in, in landfills. So I ended up going up to the, uh, to the outdoors part of New Jersey and was fly fishing every day. And that became my new addiction, you know, and uh, I went from having one rod three years ago to now I probably got about 25. <laughs> right. So that's my addictive mindset kicking in right there. And, um, and that's what I did. And eventually I started getting phone calls and getting phone calls from organizations like cop to cop and organizations, you know, and different RPOs, resiliency police officers started calling me to help out their officers that were in crisis. And that's when, it, that's when the mission started. And, um, I'm happy to say that since then, in March of 2020, I've 
definitely helped well over 150 cops get into treatment, you know, and uh, from there, it just started growing. Um, in July of that year, I ended up getting a transfer. I was in the courthouse at the time, right? And, you know, in, in my job going to the courthouse, it's got like a negative connotation to it. It seemed like a punishment, right? But that's where I needed to be. I needed to get my shit back together. And uh, in July of that year, July of 2020, I get called into my um, to my lieutenant's office and he tells me, hey, man, you're getting transferred. And my jaw hit the floor. It's like, where am I going? It's like, you're going to major crimes. And my, I said, don't fucking bullshit me. He's like, no, Brad, you're going to major crimes. The chief put you in fatal accident. And th I was so happy because I, I thought that I would never, ever do another investigation in my life. I thought I was going to be on the bench riding a pine. And uh, the chief gave me that opportunity. I went there and I loved it. I loved it. And um, I don't, you know, in recovery, there, there, there are no coincidences anymore, you know. And uh, the very first case that I got when I was in fatal accident was in my hometown, right, where I lived. And it was the same police department that I had to turn myself into, you know, uh, a couple years prior. And uh, there was, a, there was a, a hurricane that came through like the day before and knocked out all power and stuff like that. And I actually had to go into the same conference room that I was sitting in, waiting for my father and my union delegate to show on up. And that's where I conducted the interviews. And I was talking to a kid about who was intoxicated and he had hit someone. And I was like, man, this is funny how this whole thing has come full circle, you know? And my goal in that whole thing was the way I looked at it, the way I approached it was, I'm not here to, 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 to lock this kid up. I want to give this kid help. I want to give him resources, right? Because it's clear as day that his life has become out of control due to his, you know, his substance abuse. And I would give him those resources. And um, really, I mean, my life started going in a totally, completely different direction from them from what it was. And um, back in, in October of that year, a couple months later, my chief calls me and uh, he says, hey, man, you're back on the SWAT team. And I just broke down and cried because that was my passion. And I love that whole team aspect, you know, um, and it's the closest thing that I could come to, to being, you know, playing football again because of that brotherhood that you have. And I, uh, and I did that for, you know, for, for a couple months until, uh, until I got hurt. And I actually ended up tearing both of my bicep uh, tendons at the same time on both arms. So for eight weeks, I'm sitting there, my arms are at 90 degree angle in these braces. And, you know, you really take a lot of things for granted when you have use of both your arms. You know, when you don't have use of your arms, man, you're like, fuck, how the hell am I going to feed myself? How am I going to bathe myself? How am I going to wipe my ass? <laughs> you know, and these all, you know, things you don't think about until, you know, until you're faced with it, you know, and, uh, my father went out and actually bought the best thing that he's ever given me. And it was that thing called the tushy, you know, a little bidet, the power washer for your ass. They, they, put, in a yeah. they put in a toilet seat yeah. and that's what I use. And it was a great, you know, literally saved my ass. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I could have take, taken that time in my life and just sat there and, and wallowed in my misery, you know, and just been like, you know, and just get down on myself and feeling sorry for myself. But I didn't. I took that time to get back to basics. I took that time to get get back in touch with my spirituality, got back to that time to get, um, to cultivate gratitude in my life, you know? Um, 
because while I was actively, you know, engaged in my addiction, I had zero gratitude, you know, um, and it really just propelled me. And um, I, during that time, we were starting to roll out our county's resiliency program. And uh, we were teaching, for, I had to teach for six weeks straight. I had to teach all these RPOs about everything. And, um, and that's when I started telling my, telling my story. And I ended up telling my story to every single class that came through. And I taught for, for a year straight, starting in um, September of, of 21. I was telling my story to every single, and we got about 3,000 officers in my county. And I told to every single one of the officers, right? So that they know that number one, they're not alone. Okay. And number two, that listen, if I can get through this shit, anyone can. All right. And it was basically just to give these guys hope who feel helpless or hopeless, you know? And uh, I would tell my story on a Thursday. And I can't tell you how many times on a Thursday night I'd be getting phone calls. Brad, I need help. Brad, you got uh, my drinking's out of control. Brad, I need to talk to someone about my depression. I need to talk to someone about my anxiety, my PTSD, stuff like that. And I'm telling you, I started referring people out every which way. Um, you know, the, the, there's one one therapist that's up here um, who's actually my therapist. Um, I built that as practice. You know, he told me, Brad, I can't take anyone else because you're referring me to so many people. You know, and, um, you know, I ended up having to get three other subsequent surgeries after my first one. I had to get four surgeries on my left arm. You know, they had to put a cadaver tendon in my, in my arm, right? And uh, because of that, I contracted a very, very bad infection. And I was actually at the training for Resilient Minds uh, with, uh, with Mike Pellegrino. And uh, my arm started blowing up like a balloon. And uh, one of the doctors that was there, um, she goes to me, who I know very well, and she went to me, Brad, you need to get your arm checked out. I said, no, I'm good. And uh, finally, Mike came on over to me. He's like, listen, either you have two options here. Either you're going to drive yourself to the hospital or we're going to embarrass the shit out of you and call an ambulance. Right? So I was like, all right, I'll go to the hospital. And uh, that's when they told me, like, yeah, you're not going home tonight. You're going to be here for a while. And uh, this was down the shore. And then they had to transfer me up to up to up north. And, um, yeah, I had to get I had to get a surgery again. Um, and while I was in there for that week, um, it was a Friday and I was getting ready to leave. And I get a, an email get sent to my inbox. And it's my wife served me with divorce papers. And I I just crumbled. You know, um, I was doing everything I could to um, to make this work, but obviously the wounds that I caused and inflicted on her were way too deep, and I do not blame her. Okay, um, she had to do what she had to do to protect herself and protect the kids. All right, and actually now our relationship is much better than it ever was while we were married. You know, um, and so that happens on a Friday. That's Sunday. Um, my arm explodes. I, all the, the, the sutures that they, the doctor has put in after my surgery, they, they popped open and I just started leaking all over my, my bedroom floor. I had to throw a tourniquet on my arm and uh, wrapped my arm in a bath towel and drove, my, drove myself to the hospital. And while I'm driving to the hospital, I get on, get on my cell phone and I, I text all the SWAT medics because they all worked this one hospital I was going to. I text all the SWAT medics. I'm like, is anyone working today? You know, and thank God one of them were. And um, it was a trauma doc, and I went in there, and he stitched me up. And um, 
but another week later, same thing happened. You know, and then finally they're like, yeah, no, you got to go for surgery again. And uh, but during this time, I had I basically had a mental breakdown. And uh, I had reached out to a very good friend of mine um, who uh, who owns a tactical training company and who was a uh, who was in Delta and told him what was going on. I, I'm, I broke down. I'm crying to the guy and stuff like that. And, you know, he calls me back the next day and he's like, listen, I told him I told to my partner and uh, we're going to pay for you to go back down to Warrior's Heart for a recharge. You need to go down there for a couple of days and just, you know, unplug from unplug from the world and just focus on yourself. And I did that. And it's exactly what I needed. And, you know, I came back um, and I went uh, and I went straight to uh, went right up to my uh, assignment here. Now where I'm at the, the police academy. And that's really when everything started taking off with me helping out cops. And uh, then I started getting involved with all these nonprofits. You know, like, like I said, reps for responders. That was the first one I joined, right? They're local, they're close. And it's uh, started by a uh, active NYPD officer who has a similar story to mine. And uh, we, we got together and he had started this already, but we got together and I, you know, we started working together and helping out other cops. And they have a uh, meetings on Sunday nights. It's basically a group, uh, group therapy session, you know, and we all, it's all first responders and vets and we get on there and we just, we share and we talk and we talk about what's bugging us and we have guest speakers come on and we talk. It's, it's kind of like run like an AA meeting, but it's not just for AA. It's for, you know, just for cops or for first responders and vets in general. And we can talk about anything. And um, yeah, um, started doing that. And in July of uh, 22, we ended up getting hooked up with the Wounded Blue and uh, went out to Vegas for their uh, peer training. And um that's really where every that, that's where like my volunteering really took off and uh i became passionate about it you know and um you know just recently jenny made me the um the recovery director or you know so basically any officer that we get that needs to get placed into a treatment facility i i start you know contacting you know whoever to, to get them into the appropriate treatment facility and uh you know, now she, you know, I'm also a, a lead on the peer team, you know, a team leader on the peer team. And, you know, they're looking to move me up to be a, the director of the peer team. Right. Um, which I, which is probably one of the greatest honors that I've received as, in, in my law enforcement career was to do that because, you know, it just shows that, you know, Jenny and Randy have, have faith in me and trust in me that I'll, that I'll be doing the right, the right thing for these guys, you know, guys and girls. And, uh, yeah, and then um, I say earlier this year I started. Um, I got contacted by this other organization called Beyond the Badge New York, right? And uh, they're looking to expand their footprint, and when they want to get a chapter in every single state, and um, I was recommended to them. You know, they they were looking to see who would be a good fit for to to run our New Jersey chapter, and one of the one of the people on their team in New York knew me from doing outspeaks and stuff like that. And uh, they referred me to them and they reached out to me and they said, would you want to be the, the, the chapter president for New Jersey? I said, absolutely. Right. And uh, the way I'm building that board out is it's going to be all members of the resiliency officer program here in New Jersey. Right. And basically what we're, our mission is, is to educate, uh, train and prevent officer suicides. And, um, we also take care of the survivors of blue suicides. So we'll raise money, not only for the education piece of it, but to give scholarships 
to the kids of uh, of these officers who, who die by suicide, you know, and to take care of the families and do all this stuff. And it really, and that's really what I want to do, man, is just take care of the survivors and and, and educate our our officers, and so so they're better prepared, you know, because this is something you know they wanted the academy. What do they do, right? They're yelling at us, screaming at us, and stuff like that. And they hammer home, oh, you got to do defensive tactics. You got to be in shape. You got to do this. You got to do that. Da, da, da. Never once did they mention about mental health. Never once did they mention about taking care of yourself, right? And it's only until I get up there in the academy and they're during their 26 week experience and I tell my story, right? And then I remember the first time that I did it, I had an officer, a recruit, uh, come on up to me and, um, he looks at me and I can see his eyes are welling up with tears. And he just, he, he tells me, he goes like, you know, Serge, I was prior service in the army. I was, I was an engineer and we were attached to a, to an SF, uh, to, you know, an ODA. You know? And, um, he goes, I saw shit that I, that I, that I can't unsee. And I've, I've never told anyone this, but I suffer with PTSD. And he just breaks down crying to me. I have never told anyone this before. And he goes, it's because of you and hearing your story and hearing how, how courageous you were, that gave me, that gave me the, the, the hope and, and the willpower to step forward and, um, got him help and he's, and he's flourishing in his career. He's crushing it, you know, and that's what I want to do. I, because granted there were people there for me when, when I went through everything, but they, they did the best they could with what they had. They weren't educated though. Right. And that's what my goal is as, as a, as a, you know, peer support officer and a resiliency officer and all this stuff is I want to educate these officers on their options. So when I get an officer who, who needs to go to rehab, I don't just say, all right, you're going here. No, I give them options. Right. Because I want them to take the responsibility back. I want them to have ownership in their recovery, right? Because for the longest time, they, their lives have been unmanageable, right? And the, the, what it gives that officer, it gives them a sense of power back over their life again, right? And uh, I found in my experience that officers are far more likely to be successful in their recovery if they have, if they're, you know, given that option. So, um, you know, I can honestly say that, you know, you know, I had to go through what I had to go through to get where I'm at now. And uh, looking back on it, I'm grateful that I went through it. Because if I did not go through what I went through, I would not be in a position to help these officers who are struggling in silence. And um, if I could just make their lives a little bit easier, right? And, you know, try to give them some some tactics or some techniques to, to, to reduce stress in their life or, you know, just educate them on, on, on how to, how they can, you know, take their lives back and, and you know, and, and, and fix themselves. Right. That's, that's where I get my reward. You know, people always say to me, Brad, how can I pay you back? How could I, you know, you help me out so much, man. I owe you so much. I go, no, you don't, man. I go, you want to pay me back? Help them accept and suffer. Help that person who is suffering in silence get them the help they need because you know what? I had someone do that for me. I did it for that officer. Now I want you to go do it again. I want you to go take care of someone. Right. And, uh, because I'm telling you, and, and it sounds selfish when I say this, that, 
I do this so I could stay sober. You know, I, I go out and I, I, you know, I help these officers because it helps me in my sobriety because it's a constant reminder of where I once was and where I don't ever want to go back to ever again. And, um, it just gives me a lot of, a lot of joy and happiness that, uh, when I get those text messages coming back from when these guys come back from, um, from rehabs and they te- send me text messages, that's a reward right there. Tell me, you know, thank you. Thank you so much for helping me and stuff like that. Thank you for saving my life. I'm like, dude, you, you saved your own life, man. I just gave you the, I just gave you the, the tools to do it and the resources you put the work in. Right. I didn't do that. You did. And, um, yeah, man, I'm just, I'm just extremely grateful. And, you know, and, and the second best part about this whole thing is that I have met so many amazing people along this journey, you know, like you, Brad, you often, you know, and, and countless others, you know, people who now who I consider like my close friends, you know, you know, never in a million years would I say that, you know, if you were to ask me to begin my career 16 years ago, you know, do you think you would ever become friends with your, uh, with a police psychologist? I never would have thought that, right? But him and I go to him and I go out to go out to lunch all the time. You know, we text each other, call each other all the time. You know, um, and w- one of the most amazing things, and this is really a a testament to what AA can do for people. Right back in 2014, I was working in sex crimes or special victims, and uh, I get a phone call about the uh, that there's an, a nine month old baby boy who's at the hospital who suffered an overdose from heroin and uh, the mother and the boyfriend who lived local to me actually a kid lived in my, the the boyfriend lived in my hometown with high school my younger sister he was a known drug dealer he went down to newark picked up some uh picked up about six bricks of heroin where it was about 30 uh 300 bags of heroin which we, he knew were laced with fentanyl he goes back the mother and the boyfriend are um uh, snorting dope in the mother's bedroom and they have a little nine, it's not his kid, but the, the mother had a nine month old baby who's crawling around and they're snorting the bags and they're throwing them into the garbage. Well, one of those bags misses the garbage, nine month old crawls on over, picks up, puts it in his mouth. 15 minutes, the kid is blue, unresponsive, right? And uh, so the mother calls 911, boyfriend leaves and uh, paramedics get there um, and the cops get there and they load the kid up in the, into the bus and they take him to, to the local hospital, right? And it's, you know, this is Valentine's Day, right? And there's a huge snowstorm that we're, we got uh, hit with, right? And um, on that on that ambulance ride to the hospital, I kid coded three times. Eventually, the mother told them what the kid had gotten into, but she told them that the kid had taken Suboxone, right? You can't overdose from Suboxone, okay? And uh, so they they took the uh, they took Narcan, they hit him with Narcan, kid comes back, boom, right? Take the kid into the uh, PZR. Mother goes right to the bathroom, starts snorting more dope. Okay. Boyfriend's delivering dope to the hospital for her. Um, you know, we get called, do our whole thing, end up, you know, eventually after a lengthy investigation, arresting both the mother and the father. I actually, uh, the mother and the boyfriend. I arrest the, the, the mother at the bedside of the child, right? In, uh, in New York City, right? Because they had transferred the kid over to New York. And I remember going and walking in and seeing this child in the bed, in the, in, you know, in the crib, really. And, kids hooked up all these machines and tubes and wires and shit. And I look into the bed and I see this porcelain doll just laying there, motionless, unresponsive, eyes closed. And I started crying. And 
I started crying. I say to myself, what did this kid do to deserve this? Right. And my sergeant who was with me, you know, old salty guy, you know, basically says, uh, suck it the fuck up. You got a job to do. And I just buried it. Right. And went out to the bar and I got hammered, you know, and, uh, ended up arresting the kid, the boyfriend. And, um, four years later, he reached out to me and he wanted to meet up with me and talk to me. And I told him to go fuck himself because I was still so angry with this kid. And, uh, I did not understand what he was trying to do. And it was only until a year later, after I had gone to rehab and now I'm actually involved in AA, I go to this uh, AA picnic. And I see this girl I went to high school with there and we start talking. And I asked her if she knew, if she knew this individual. And she said, yeah, this kid actually helped me um, get sober. And I was like, wow. She's like, how do you know him? He was younger than you. I said, well, then the whole thing with the baby? She's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm the detective that arrested him. She's like, wow. Right. And so, you know, there's no coincidences in AA, right? That night she runs into him at the local supermarket, tells her, tells him that she met me. The following day, I get a phone call from him. Hey, Brad, you know, I heard you're in AA. I hear you going, you're going through a rough patch of your life. I just want to let you know, bro, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, I got your back. And I broke down and cried on the phone. We're best friends now. Me and that guy. The same guy I arrested, you know, what is it? Not almost, you know, it's not over nine years ago. We're now best friends. I wanted nothing more than to see that kid rot in jail for 10 years. And now we go fishing together. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. You know, and, and that all would not be possible without the gift of AA. You know, and so I can honestly say that I am just so grateful for, for everything that God has bestowed upon me, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, because it makes me who I am today. That's it. <laughs> Brad. Well, let me, Austin, how amazing was that? That has got to be the most amazing podcast we've done. Uh, one of, of course, man, he just so articulate. This is uh, such a great story. And I think as we kind of finish up here, Austin, do you have anything you want to add as we, before we kind of wrap this up? Uh, dude, that was riveting, man. Like I, I actually <laughs> felt like a, uh, like I was in the seat, just like I was just, I couldn't speak, couldn't do anything, man. I just wanted to listen to everything you said. And uh, for those that do listen, that you got to know it's good because you didn't say a word either, I Brad. Didn't we, didn't, we didn't want Yeah, yeah, we didn't need to. And it was fucking just amazing. Absolutely. Oh, what a great storyteller, Brad. Thank you so much. Let's, let's just kind of wrap up here. So Mm -hmm. you, you, you were involved in several things. Let's, let's give some plugs to some things. Okay. Through the course of your story, uh, there's some, there's some, uh, uh, opportunities here for people to actually connect with some great organizations. Uh, let's just kind of go through the line here. Uh, and, and how do people connect, uh, with these organizations that you listed and, and, and kind of roll those out for it. How do people connect? Yeah. So really, uh, reps for responders. Um, it's primarily on, um, they have both Instagram and Facebook accounts and that's primarily the way to get in touch with is, is through, is through those two, um, those two ways. They also have, there's a website, you know, but basically if you were to search, go search reps for responders. Okay. And you'll come, you'll come to the page. 
um, and just reach out there. And uh, the guy who runs it, his name is Frank. You know, and it'll be Frank or myself or one of the other, uh, you know, recovery specialists that they have uh, reaching out to them. You know, um, yeah. So that, and then um, the Wounded Blue, um, you can reach out to their peer support line, uh, which is 702-290-5611. Or, you know, you could go to their email, uh, go to their website and, uh, you know, contact us through through the website and um, I'll receive an email and I'll reach out to them directly. Um, and for uh, Beyond the Badge, New Jersey, again, same thing. Just go through uh, Instagram or Facebook or just do a Google search on uh, Beyond the Badge, New Jersey, and uh, it will come to you. You'll probably go to Beyond the Badge, New York's website, but you could, you know, contact us through there as well. You know, we'll get and we'll get in touch with uh, we'll get in touch with the people. And then also uh, resilient minds in the front lines. You know, I'm a um, I'm a trainer for them, so I'll go around the country and and, and train um, officers, civilians, veterans, whoever you know on uh, on on developing and building resiliency. So, and you can just do another Google search on them and pop on up. And they're a fabulous organization uh, yep. bringing resiliency all across the United States. I know, yeah. uh, I know Michael. He's a great guy. A lot of fun to be around. That's a, mm-hmm. uh, a fabulous, fantastic team of yeah. uh, resiliency instructors that bring about. Yeah, Brad, thank you so much for this. You have been yeah. absolutely uh, a delight, yeah. and thank you for your transparency. That's a uh, that's a lot of heartache, man, to throw out there on a podcast, and uh, I'm yeah. just really appreciative. And uh, it's been great to get to know you. Thank you so much for your. Yeah, I was about to say, if I didn't share that, you know, um, and share the gifts that were given to me. You know, I'd be doing a disservice to all the officers out there and, you know, veterans and whoever's listening, right? Because uh, people need to know they're not alone, you know, and uh, you can get through everything. You, you're going to be stronger if you got a, 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 a support system behind you. And that's what we're here to do. And, uh, you know, I made it my mission. Like, I'm not going to leave an officer behind. I'm not going to leave anyone behind. You know, we got to take care of each other. You know, and oh, I forgot to mention one other thing, too. Just because I didn't have enough stuff on my plate, I just like to, you know, keep making my plate bigger. Um, I start school in, um, in the fall to go back for my second master's. I'm actually going uh, to get my master's in social work. So I become a, uh, a therapist and I want to be a, a trauma therapist and addiction therapist for first responders and veterans. So I'm preparing for my, for my career after, uh, after law enforcement. <laughs> well, I love the theme of your message there at the end. And that's the entire premise behind this podcast is no one fights this fight alone. Nobody has to do it on their own. Nobody, if you're, if you're alone out there, then, uh, reach out. Uh, Brad Wadby has uh, clearly given you a lot of resources. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, not a problem. And if you guys want to reach out to me directly, you can reach me out on my uh, my Instagram. It's God's Breacher, right? And that's my Instagram handle. And uh, you know, shoot me a DM or whatever, and uh, I'll try to help you out to the best of my ability. And if I don't have the answer, I'm going to get you in contact with someone who does. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. 
Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-4193. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.